Let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of Acts and to chapter 17. We'll continue our verse-by-verse study in the book of Acts. This morning, our text is Acts 17, verses 15 through 34. As we'll see, the topic is Paul is invited to share his message with the intellectuals on Mars Hill, but he's verbally attacked when he mentions the resurrection of Jesus. The title of our message, of course, Mars Attacks. I got no reaction first service. I don't know what that means. So I I said, well, no, how about we call it Life on Mars or Mission to Mars or The Grace on Mars. Get that? Because there's a their face on Mars, the grace on Mars. All right, so. Hey, look, there's a writer's strike, and this is the... (laughs) It's the best I could do on my own without the writers. Verse uh, 15 of Acts 17. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. 
However, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Demaris, and others with them. Let's pray together. Lord, as always, we not only desire, we require that your Holy Spirit be our teacher this morning, and that as we read and then read again these living words, and as we comment upon them, the Lord Jesus Christ would reveal himself in our midst and in our hearts, that we would leave this place more refreshed and encouraged than when we first came in. Meet needs, touch lives, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. There are a lot of things that provoke us Christians. The latest is the upcoming movie, The Golden Compass. The movie is an adaptation of the first novel of a fantasy trilogy called His Dark Materials. In the books, a malevolent governing body called The Church, which answers to The Vatican, is known to kidnap children for experimentation. Real creativity here. With the help of a golden compass that reveals a coded answer to any question asked by the user, the main character by the trilogy's end gets to the bottom of the missing children and kills a character called God. The author of the series of novels, Philip Pullman, is an avowed atheist who specifically cites his hostility to C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia as a motivation for writing his own series. If you want to get up to speed on the movie, I've got a copy of some information from an apologetics website uh, on the back table, on the entry table. A lot of things provoke us. I'm simply using that as an example. I want to talk about our being provoked. In our text, we're told that while the Apostle Paul walked around Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. The Greek word is paroxuno and can mean provoked or irritated. It can also mean urged, spurred on, and stimulated. Your King James Version translates it stirred. The Greek culture in Rome Uh, Roman Athens was promoting an idolatry so gross that it provoked Paul, stirring him to do something about it. You and I walk around our cities, and via various media, we walk around the world. As we encounter the world, we are going to be provoked. We should do something about it. What did Paul do when he was provoked? He did what he always did. He preached the gospel. Specifically, you're told twice that he proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you and I are provoked, the action we should be stirred to is to preach the gospel. It is the power of God to save. I'm not saying we can't ever boycott or write to our elected representatives, or get involved in issues or causes or movements. I am saying that too often we do those things instead of continuing to live and share the simple but life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. We try to take on the culture using its methods rather than trusting in the spiritual weapons that are at our disposal. We can learn at least two things from Paul about how to handle getting provoked. I'll organize my thoughts around them. Number one, get provoked, but don't lose your focus. And number two, get provoked, but don't lose your footing. First of all, in verses 15 through 18, get provoked, but don't lose your focus. You expect a missionary or a minister to stay focused on preaching Jesus Christ. 
It's their calling, and it's often their vocation. But we've seen in the book of Acts that every believer, regardless of their vocation, was talking about Jesus to people they encountered at home, in the workplace, and out in the marketplace. All believers are lay missionaries and lay ministers. Thus, we need to sharpen and maintain our focus, especially when we are provoked by something in the surrounding culture. And so beginning again in verse 15, so those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Paul had been run out of Berea. He escaped to Athens and now he was waiting for Silas and Timothy to come. Verse 16, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. There were literally thousands of altars to various gods. There was a saying that it was easier to meet a god in Athens than it was to meet a man. It was more than that. More than just these altars, more than just the obvious idolatry, everywhere Paul looked, he could see men and women pursuing idolatry and covetousness as they lived in ignorance of Jesus Christ. The altars were just a a very vivid reminder to him of the vast population of people who didn't know their Savior, Jesus Christ, who were trying to establish lives or careers or whatever you'd call it, trying to find some meaning and purpose to life when all the time they have eternity in their hearts and they can only find that meaning and purpose and joy in a personal relationship with God through Jesus. And so Paul, that's what God used, those altars and those idols to open his eyes all the more and to provoke him to what was happening in Athens. Now, if you walk around Kings County, you'll see a significant number of idolatrous statues. It's one of the things that first struck me when I moved here from Southern California. Uh, It it blew my mind, quite honestly. And and, uh, people make no uh, apologies for that. You'll see many other things that represent the empty idolatry of non-believers. Your spirit should be provoked, but not to anger, not to frustration, not to threatenings. Should be provoked to want to share Jesus Christ with those who are lost and rushing headlong towards hell. It should stir in you and in us as a fellowship a passion for souls. And so in verse 17, therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. As was his custom in every city, Paul went into the Jewish synagogue and taught Jews and Gentiles who worshiped there about Jesus from their scriptures. But he also spent time in the public marketplace called the Agora preaching publicly. Paul was one of those crazy street preachers that you sometimes encounter. Have you ever thought about that before? Especially in larger cities, if you're out in some kind of a public square, there's always some, what we consider a whacked out crazy street preacher. Repent! The end of the world is near. I mean, it's such a caricature that we have commercials and jokes and, you know, you can put that in movies and it's always good for a laugh. Paul the Apostle, this tremendously intelligent, well-trained servant of Jesus Christ to whom we owe the writing of so much of the New Testament and so much doctrinal teaching, he was out preaching in the Agora. And, and as we'll see, they considered him kind of a, a whack job. Uh, while he was out there. Now, 
God may call some of us to a street ministry. And if that doesn't scare you, nothing will. I mean, people are always worried about, well, I don't know if I want to, you know, really commit to God because he might send me to Africa. Hey, he might just send you to the steps of the Civic Auditorium at lunch with a sandwich board sign. We've got some signs you can borrow here and uh, preach the gospel. You never know. More likely, God just wants us to interact daily with the people who he says are those who happen to be where we are. Think about wherever you're going to be today or tomorrow and the people who happen to be there that you interact with. In those interactions, we want to maintain our focus on Jesus and their need to receive him as their savior. Sure, we're going to work. Sure, we're going to shop. But we're always praying about an opportunity to share the Lord. Maybe wearing a Christian t-shirt or carrying our Bible or, you know, in some way just asking the Lord to open the door of ministry so that we can know the joy of talking about this person who we love so much. And so in verse 18, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Now, the particular philosophies are not really all that important. Epicureanism and Stoicism were prevalent at that time in Athens, and you can study them until you're blue in the face. Philosophy is a vain attempt to describe the human condition apart from God's revelation of himself in the Bible. Some called Paul a babbler. It's a word that describes a bird pecking at seeds, and it came to be used especially of crows. When used of men, it meant that they were making a lot of noise but saying nothing important. I like the reference to crows because we have our own local understanding of crows here in Hanford. I follow this every year. Every year, uh, the Hanford Police Department gets the green light to go out and shoot crows. Uh, it's like a tradition. It's a crow shoot, I guess. And, uh, you know, I mean, San Juan Capistrano, swallows, Hanford, crow shoot. Uh, I mean, we're right up there in the Audubon Society as far as, you know, bird loving. Uh, and so Paul is there. He's preaching in the marketplace the truth of Jesus Christ. And these guys are saying, look at him. He's like, caw, caw. You know, he's some babbler. They're, they're like heckling him like, as if he's a crow. And these other guys say, well, no, he's preaching about foreign gods. And what's funny about that, they thought that both Jesus and resurrection were the names of gods. They, they couldn't even listen long enough to understand at this point that he was saying that Jesus rose from the dead. They thought the, 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 the name resurrection was another kind of God that they'd never heard of. And they were at least interested because they, you know, they, they wanted to know what the current gods were. And, and maybe they had missed one and all that. And so they're going to invite him to speak to them. Provoked, Paul proclaimed. He never lost his focus on the gospel as the power of God to save. While there may be many other things we can do to affect our world, none of them is more significant than to simply share the life-changing message of Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead with whoever happens to be there. Now, in verses 19 through 34, we'll see that you get provoked, but don't lose your footing. You're focused on Jesus, then people might start to question you. If you're not careful, you can begin to lose your footing by watering down the message. 
Paul gave us a great example of maintaining your footing and standing on solid ground. And so in verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Ares was the Greek god of war. Uh, it was also a terrible car that Chrysler made at one point, if you remember. But uh, Ares was the Greek god of war. The car didn't really do justice to him, did, do you think? You know, did you remember the Dodge Ares? What a pile. But anyway, <laughs> Ares was the Greek god of war. His Roman name was Mars. By the way, if any of you are still driving in Ares, I apologize. Uh, anybody driving in Ares? No, you're lying. No, are you? Actually, it was, a, it was a very attractive little car. <laughs> it's right up there with the Chevy Citation uh, as a, uh, you know, a real, uh, real entry into the front-wheel drive market that everybody wanted. Seems like we're having trouble with the catching up to the foreign cars in the hybrid market as well. I read about the, I think the 2008 Malibu is uh, Chevy Malibu is going to be a hybrid. It's going to get a whopping two miles more a gallon uh, than its gasoline version. So you're going to want to rush out and spend $10,000 more on that. But uh, anyway, back to uh, Ares, the god of war, uh, who his Roman name was Mars. Thus the Areopagus was the hill of Ares or Mars Hill. It was also the name of a Greek court, I told that is still the name of the Greek Supreme Court today. Though limited in power because of Roman rule, the Areopagus as a court still had great influence. If this was an official hearing, they could have forbidden Paul to go on preaching. And so there's some thought that he wasn't just talking to these guys, but that they were hearing him to see if he was going to be able to keep on preaching his doctrine. In a moment of sarcasm, Luke told us that the Athenians and foreigners wasted their time acting as though they were seeking the truth when in fact they just wanted to hear new things and debate one another. It's sad when we take sides rather than seek the truth. I, I know, I understand that there's a time to take sides and all, but I, I frankly am tired of these debate television shows where no one ever agrees on anything. There's always this side and that side, and, and you can see, sometimes just in the countenance of the person, they don't even really believe what they're saying, but they're taking the side. Those of you who debated in high school or college, you know it doesn't really matter what you even believe about a topic. They just hand you a topic, and whatever it is, you're for it, you're against it, now debate, because you're trying to hone your debating skills. You're not trying to get to the truth. I would just blow my mind if in one of these presidential debates, somebody would get up and say, hey, you know, you're right. I think I'm going to make that part of my platform too. What would that do? It would be, it would like worlds would be stood on their head, you know, and stuff. It would be crazy. But we need that kind of truth. And, and so these guys, they just like to hear themselves talk and uh, they didn't really want the truth. They, they just wanted to debate with one another. Now, believe it or not, 
Some scholars criticize Paul for his sermon on Mars Hill. They think he beat around the bush, changed his methodology, didn't mention the name of Jesus Christ, and didn't have much of a result. Man, I want to be there when Paul finds these guys in heaven. I want to be, in fact, I'm going to go to Paul and say, hey, hi, you're the Apostle Paul. My name is Gene. I'm in Hanford. Always loved you, bro. Uh, let's go find some of these guys and, you know, and, and let them say it to your face, man. But anyway, uh, you know, I mean, who am I to judge the Apostle Paul? The truth is his talk on Mars Hill is a masterpiece of how to share with someone who knows almost nothing about the God of the Bible. And it will help us if we can identify even a few general principles, uh, background principles, to get us going. And, and the first thing I see here is that Paul was courteous. In verse 22, then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him I proclaim to you. Now, Paul complimented them on being very religious. Religion is not a good thing, but it was their thing, and so he began where they were in their thinking. Christians should not be afraid to start wherever people are to explain who Jesus is. We need to know where a person is at and then bring the truth to them. We can't expect people to get up to speed with our language and our understanding. Uh, we need to talk to people where they're at. The next thing we see is that Paul was contemporary. He knew what was happening in their culture. He had experienced some of their culture and was aware of what was happening. Each of us must remain contemporary without becoming contaminated. So we, we want to be in the world, but not of the world. You kind of need to know what's going on. Next, we see that Paul was creative. He had encountered an altar to the unknown God. In case they missed one, and he or she actually showed up and got angry, where's my altar? You know, and lightning bolts or whatever. A car's going to be named after me one day, you know, kind of a thing. And, and so, you know, Pinto, the god of... <laughs> explosions <laughs> you know I mean so yeah we yeah here's your altar it's uh you know to the unknown god translated pinto or vega uh as it were or pacer but uh anyway we owned all three of those cars by the way uh we were just that way but uh anyway never did have much luck with cars so uh, they had this altar to the unknown God. Now, now, we would make fun of that. I mean, if I was with the guys and we're in Athens and we saw that, we think, man, these people are, look how foolish these people are. Uh, this absolute foolishness. They, you know, they, they have an altar to the unknown God. How can you worship an unknown God? However, Paul didn't ridicule it. He used it to try to reach them. He said, hey, I can, I can use that. I can step on that as a springboard and let them know that I'm thinking about what they're thinking about. And so these Athenians, they had no knowledge of the Old Testament. And so Paul appealed to an older, more universal revelation of God. He appealed to what we call special creation. 
Verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Special creation by the God of the Bible is the only truly viable explanation for the universe and our place within it. And it's not just a matter of faith. Yes, it requires faith to believe in the Bible, but it requires faith to believe in the theories of science as well. Special creation better accounts for the facts of science that we have discovered over the centuries. You know, if scientists have done one thing well, it is convince people that they have all the facts on their side and that we have only faith and that to become a Christian you have to ignore science and the facts of science as if they haven't found the missing link. Well, they haven't found the missing link and they won't find the missing link uh, and yet they cling tenaciously to their theories as if they were true. And so not only do we have a better explanation for the facts that actually exist, we have an eyewitness to creation. God says he was there and he tells us exactly how he did it. Now, eyewitness testimony is pretty good, uh, especially if it's from a credible source. And so I think we're in good shape when it comes to creation. Now, in verse 26, it says, he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Modern science is almost as smart as Paul was all the way back in the first century. Geneticists have proven that all human beings descend from a single mother. Time Magazine did an article on this a few years ago. This is an undisputed fact of secular science. We all descended at some point from one woman in Africa, and this is without doubt. Now, Paul knew that from reading the Bible, and he knew the father, and he knew both of their names, Adam and Eve. And so Paul was a lot smarter than we are even today. You know, we're not afraid of scientific discovery because all it ever does is substantiate what God has already said in His Word. And and whatever archaeologists find, whatever scientists find, whatever uh, mathematicians uncover, it all is in harmony, harmony, excuse me, with the Word of God. And he talks about... uh, that God has determined their times and the boundaries of their dwellings. This tells us that history is not the random rise and fall of various civilizations. History is following a course preset by God. Its purpose is to redeem fallen humanity back to a personal relationship with God. Verse 27, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. This is an altogether remarkable statement, one of my absolute favorite verses in the Scripture. Though mankind is lost and therefore described as groping in the dark, God has shed sufficient light in creation that they might find Him if they seek Him. No matter where a person is born, anywhere, at any time, this text says God is not far from Him. Men are thus capable of seeking God, and God will give more light, more revelation to those who seek Him. Creation is a partial revelation of His nature. To those who seek, He will give a greater revelation and ultimately 
tell them his name. And so this is the evangelical position. When people say, what about those who have never heard? Our answer is they have creation as a witness. And though they're groping in the dark, though it's not a perfect witness, if they seek the Lord, God will reveal himself to them incrementally through creation until they come to know Christ. Uh, If you want to read a fascinating book, you can read Eternity in Their Hearts by uh, a guy whose name I'll remember in 10 minutes, Don Richards' son, Don Richardson, (laughs) who drove an Aries uh, back in the 80s. But anyway, uh, it's it's just, you know, because people say, oh, that's you know, that doesn't work. There are so many fantastic stories, uh, missionary stories of people groups that, you know, we went to for the first time who had these amazing creation stories and, and were just waiting for somebody. There's a story I remember of they had a legend that someday a man with a white book with gold line edges would come and tell them the name of the true God. And then the missionary shows up with the white Bible and the go- and they, the whole village gets saved. You hear these stories of entire villages, entire nations like Tonga getting saved, and you think, that can't be true. Yes, it's true, because God has given a revelation of himself through creation, and there are those who are seeking after him, and though they're groping in the dark, running into things, not having the full light of the gospel, God sees to it that they receive a further revelation. And so in verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. We've said that Paul was courteous, contemporary, and creative. Here we see he was conversant. He was familiar not just with the contemporary culture, but with its influences. He knew the writers behind their culture and how it was being influenced. He had read some of their poets and he could quote them. Now again, we need to be careful but we cannot ignore the influences behind our culture. I don't think you have to read everything that different people have written to know where they're coming from and why, but you need to know a little bit about where they're coming from and why because these influences are shaping the secular culture. And the more you know about them, the more you can engage and be conversant with somebody, the more interesting Christianity is going to be to that person. Because you know what? What you and I have is better than what the world has. We're not afraid of what the world has to offer and share. We were in that world. We couldn't wait to get out of that bondage, out of that sickness, out of that evil, and into the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We have nothing to be ashamed of. There's no philosopher, no scientist, there's no uh, theologian, non-Christian theologian. None of these people have anything to share, no philosopher that can compete with simple biblical Christianity. At the very least, you can look at somebody and say, well, all I know is that I was blind and now I see. I was lost and now I'm found. Just start singing Amazing Grace. When I was studying existentialism at the University of California, Riverside, I wanted to blow my brains out studying contemporary philosophy. And and they had classes, not there, but at the higher level where one of the classes was why you shouldn't kill yourself if you're going to be an existentialist because it didn't make any difference whether you lived or died. 
amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You're dealing with people whose ultimate goal in life leads them to suicide. That's the highest goal of an existentialist. There is life means nothing. And so, you know, we're not embarrassed. We can talk to those people. They might call you a crow. I mean, you'd be talking to somebody about Jesus and they ah, ah. I mean, you know, that, they did that to the apostle Paul. I mean, he's a lot smarter than me. He's way smarter than you. I had to. But, uh, you know, but what we have is real and it is true and it is life changing. And so uh, we can know a little bit about the culture, not be influenced by it, but know its influences and take it on. Verse 29, therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art and man's devising. Now, by offspring of God, Paul didn't mean every human being is a child of God. His context is creation. Every person receives their life from God and is therefore made in the image of God, but that image was marred by sin, and so we are fallen and must be rescued by God through Jesus Christ. Also, we learn in this verse something that we know. Idolatry is logically inconsistent since it ought to be obvious to everyone that creation demands a creator. We cannot make God. God has to make us. You know, I really thought we had these guys years ago and we would do the design argument, you know, that design demands a designer. And we'd always tell people, you know, you don't get a, a, a wristwatch by throwing a bomb into a watch factory. Big bang! And then all of a sudden you've got a wristwatch. And, and you think, well, you know, that's pretty powerful stuff. How do you have all this incredible design without a designer? And now some of these scientists are saying, who says order can't come out of chaos? Who says that? And then you say, well, show me anywhere where that's true. I don't have to show you nothing. I believe that it's possible. You believe that it's not nanny nanny. We're in control of the schools, so what are you going to do about that? I mean, you know, it's, it's that kind of a thing. And so you can't even argue with these people. I mean, you can prove that they're wrong and it doesn't, they're like these guys on Mars Hill. As soon as you prove they're wrong in one area, they step over to another area and they start talking about stuff. And, and it's pretty crazy. Verse 30, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. The times of ignorance refers to men who are groping in the dark with only creation as a witness. Overlooked means God is long suffering with such men because they only have a partial witness. He held and holds men accountable only for the knowledge that they have. Now that Jesus has come and the full revelation of God's plan is expounded, God commands men everywhere to repent. They're no longer groping around in the dark. Jesus said light has come into the darkness. And so when a person says, well, I'm not going to believe in God because there's somebody on the other side of the world who's in darkness and who's never heard about Jesus Christ, God's taking care of that person. He's given them a revelation. He'll send them a deeper, greater knowledge somehow, miraculously if necessary, but you have this full-orbed understanding. You know that the God of creation is Jesus Christ, and God commands you to repent. And this is the knowledge that you are responsible for. And then in verse 31, 
He has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. History is moving towards a conclusion. All men everywhere will one day give an account of their righteousness. Am I righteous enough to go to heaven and spend eternity with God? The biblical answer for every human being is no. There is none righteous. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They've fallen short of God's standard, which is absolute perfection, not just in the actions, but in the heart. Thus God ordained Jesus Christ to come into the world of men, represent mankind. Those who believe in him are declared righteous. They are given his righteousness. Those who reject Jesus have to stand before God in their own self-righteousness, and it won't be enough for them to get into heaven. We can be sure all this is true because of one amazing historical fact, Jesus Christ died but rose from the dead. And so in verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. Now they mocked the idea of a resurrection. It's funny really because here were a bunch of supposed intellectuals who believed to some extent in fanciful mythologies and when confronted with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a proven historic fact, they treated it as if it was mythology. You know, a lot of scientists, they, they really believe in things that seem like mythology to me. I mean, I'm not very smart, but I know one theory of evolution, one uh, part of the theory of evolution, since they can't find any transitional forms, no missing links, you know, uh, they, they have to account for the fact that there aren't any. And so one theory is that every now and then there's just a big leap of human evolution. There don't need, and therefore, there don't need to be any missing links. There's just one day, whoop, the human race has leaped into an, a, a whole new evolutionary plateau. I first read about that when I was 12 years old in a comic book called The X-Men. <laughs> because that's what happens in The X-Men. If you've seen The X-Men movies, that's what, all of a sudden, boop, there's Professor X and Wolverine and Rogue and all of these characters who inexplicably have evolved into the next phase of humanity. And so the scientists who are on the Discovery Channel who are talking about this are believing in a comic book mythology. We have the fact of the resurrection. <laughs> resurrection. <laughs> As if a man, you know, oh, they laugh at you. And it's, it's just, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Now, this is no watered-down message. Every sentence refutes some aspect of the prevailing philosophy or religion of Athens. Paul was courteous and all of these other things, but he didn't back down. Verse 33, so Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, uh, and others. The gospel proved its power as some were saved. Paul had debated with them without berating them. On Mars Hill, confronted by centuries of philosophy and mythology and idolatry, he kept his footing and stood solidly on the revelation of God in creation and in Jesus Christ. We can't really criticize him for not using the name of Jesus because after all, he was interrupted just as he was about to. He, he brought them to the point of saying, there is a man who raised from the dead and his name is Jesus Christ, but they stopped him and started to ridicule him. Until the Lord comes for us, there will always be things that should provoke us. 
We started with movies, and movies are a good example. Last year it was the Da Vinci Code. Christians were up in arms about that, rightfully so. This year it's going to be the Golden Compass. There'll be other movies uh, by next year. You can be sure of that. And not just movies, things in the media, things all around the world and in the world that provoke us. When provoked, our first thoughts ought to be how we can show others a true and accurate representation of the grace and mercy and love of God for lost mankind. If you'll notice, in all of these movies or books or whatever they are, they always take some horrible view of Christianity that's really not the biblical Christianity of Jesus Christ, and then they attack that. And people in the world think, oh, yeah, that's the way Christians are. And then the danger is we sometimes are the way Christians are. We're harsh and judgmental and cruel and threatening. Paul was provoked. He was stirred. And he said, I've got to get out to the steps of the Agora and tell people about Jesus Christ because this isn't Jesus that they're portraying. My Jesus is gracious and merciful and loving and forgiving and and wants to save people and bring them into joy and the fruit of the Spirit. And that's all we really need to do is just be genuine around people to refute all of these books and magazines and movies or whatever. We might want to do more. I'm not saying we can't or shouldn't. That's not the point. The point is where do we focus what is our footing? We're not doing anybody any good if we, if we forget to bring the resurrection. Scholars criticize Paul because he doesn't mention Jesus. He doesn't use the J word. How often have I seen Christians, and maybe I'm guilty of it myself, on television, I've seen Christians on television not really even talk about the Lord or Christian things because they want to engage the culture on the, on, on the terms of the culture. They don't want to... The, the commentator to say, oh, you're a babbler. Ah, ah. And so, hey, don't mention the resurrection. Don't use the J word. You'll lose your audience. What else do we have? A man who was God died and rose from the dead, and he lives forevermore. It's the bedrock that saves us and saves others. We'll end in uh, Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Let's pray. All right, Lord, we thank you so much for the example of the Apostle Paul there alone in Athens, that uh, marvelous and magnificent and yet wicked city, being confronted by and attacked by the greatest minds of that day. But Lord, we see that their minds were corrupted, their minds were perverted, their minds were depraved, their minds were fallen. They were groping in the dark. And even after being given the truth, They rejected the truth of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would learn things from Paul's example. Uh, Chiefly, Lord, that wherever we happen to be, you want us to represent you as you really are, loving, forgiving, merciful, 
give us joy unspeakable, full of glory, so that people will see that there is a Christianity, that there is a biblical Christianity that is unlike the false caricature portrayed uh, in the media. And um, Lord, that that genuine is what people would seek, that they would be drawn to it, knowing, Lord, that their own lives are empty, vain, filled with idolatry. They're seeking after some unknown God. To some it's a career, to some it's a relationship, to others it's a substance. We know that it's Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. If I don't see you before Thursday, have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, try and represent Christ to whoever's there. I know, you know, people talk about their family. Yeah, Uncle Giuseppe's going to be there and he'll be drunk. Be courteous and, uh, you know, conversant uh, and all those things. Say, oh, I see that you are very drunk. God created the vine and the branches. Or, so, you know, I mean, there's ways of doing it. But uh, have a great Thanksgiving. We, will, we are meeting Wednesday morning and Wednesday evening as usual. They're regular uh, days as far as we're concerned. Uh, so come on out to Ignite. And for some of you, you might be able to come out uh, for the first time because you don't really have anywhere to go on Thursday early and you're not getting up early for work. So uh, come on out and check us out on Wednesday night. Hang out in the cafe, in the courtyard. If you're here, uh, find somebody you've never seen before and at least introduce yourself. Say, hey, I'm Gene. You can use my name if you'd like. Uh, I mean, that way, you know, I just say, hey, I'm Gene. And, uh, you know, how long have you been coming to Calvary? See what the Lord would do with that. Uh, be friendly. May God bless you and keep you. Amen.